I'm Ayelet Waldman. I'm Paul Waldman. This is Boundary Issues. Welcome to Boundary Issues, the podcast where two siblings solve all the world's problems while blaming each other for their own. All right, I yell it. Today is the day that I know you have been waiting for. So eagerly. Oh, I have. Wait. So eagerly. So eagerly. We finally get to talk about White Rural Rage, the book that I have coming out with my good friend, Tom Schaller. You have been itching for this. First of all, I should say before I start giving you a ton of shit that it is actually a really great book. But before that, I just want the audience to know that you had so little faith in my reading comprehension that you sent me questions to ask you. I wasn't even sure that you had read it. So oh, I just wanted to be sure that we would have something to talk about and that you could participate. Are you, are you, are you saying that because you never read any of my books? or I read some of your projection? books. I didn't read all of them, I'll admit, but I read some of them. <laughs> So introduce your book. Go ahead. Okay. So this is about white rural rage, the threat to American democracy by Tom Schaller and Paul Waldman, which is going to be available everywhere. And we're going to talk about some of the interesting issues it raises and how we wrote it and why we wrote it. But before we do, I thought there was something I yell at you and I could discuss. I'm noticing that as we do this, you know, you've been you've been sort of mocking me for all my shameless self-promotion. But when you have a book coming out, you have to do a lot of self-promotion across everything, every place where you have a presence, uh, even if it's for what you believe is a good cause, the getting people to buy your book so you can pay for your children's college tuition or whatever. That is something that is just required. And not only for when you have something like a book coming out, but even just to promote your your own career as a writer. And I think it's much more necessary now for people to create kind of a persona that they can get other people to like and appreciate and eventually give some of their money to. And I wonder if you ever feel like that's something that you do reluctantly or is it just second nature or is it something you feel like burdened by? What's your perspective on the need for writers to self-promote? It's so funny because I quit Twitter. I didn't have that many followers. I probably had about 50,000 followers, but I left and Elon Musk was my excuse. But when my publisher, the publicist at Knopf said to me, you know, no, you have to stay and promote. I said, every time I tweet, I unsell a book. People buy me my books fewer times because they don't like who I am on Twitter. And I think that's because I had no capacity to cultivate a persona that was a book selling persona. And I actually, when I see people do this, I have this really gut reaction. I find it utterly loathsome, that kind of self-promotion, but I get it, right? I mean, it's so hard to make a living writing books and it's so hard to figure out like, why does a book hit? Um, and maybe if I just post this Instagram picture about it, I wish we had any clarity around that. I wish there was a way, although of course there really isn't, to do like a double blind study that said, 
if you go on and make super cloying comments tied to your book, or if you show up on Instagram five minutes before your book is published and then leave five minutes after it doesn't make it onto the next, the New York Times bestseller list, that it's more successful than not. Because I do feel like I don't know any writer who enjoys the promotion part of it. I mean, I actually don't like the interviews and the podcasts and the radio shows and the events, but it's the kind, that feeling that you're standing out there with like an alms box saying, please, please help the poor. That's so disgusting. What about you? Do you hate it as much as I do? I guess it depends on which parts of it we're talking about. Because there are some things, as you say, like I find it perfectly nice to go on a radio show and talk about the ideas in the book and have an interesting conversation about it. I guess what I, what I don't like is the kind of feeling that sort of pressure. Like there's always this sort of question hanging over your head. It, you know, Have you done enough to get people to like it? And this is something I feel just in my job now. I recently left a secure job at the Washington Post, and now I have a bunch of different things that I'm doing. Uh, some of which are more secure than others. You know, for instance, I write columns for MSNBC and they pay me. And as long as I make the editors happy and readers seem to like it, that's great. And I don't really have to do much other than, you know, when I have a column come out, I tweet it out, I put up a blue sky, stuff like that. But I have a Substack, and I've got to get people to come and subscribe in order to make money for it so I can make a living. This podcast, I want as many people as possible to listen to it. So I have to go out there and tell people about it and stuff like that. And there is this kind of constant pressure to present something to the world that's going to make people say, I like that person. I don't know that I feel like I need people to like me, but I want people to say, oh, I like what he has to say. I'm going to go and click that subscribe button and maybe even get a paid subscription. That's one of the things about it that does feel a little oppressive is that it can't ever stop. You can't be like, oh, well, now I have the job and I can just do the work, which is the, you know, the, the point of the whole thing. I can just write what I want to write and say what I want to say and work on that and concentrate on that. There's this just treadmill of you always have to keep promoting it so that you can keep doing the work because if you don't promote it, then you won't be able to do the work. I mean, I always admire the writers who just refuse to do any of it, who don't tour, who don't do any promotion. I mean, but obviously that only works if you're the peak of the peak and you know people are going to buy your book no matter what. But um, we should get started talking about your book. I think we should have Tom introduce the book. Well, maybe I should introduce Tom and then Tom can introduce the book. Yes. You introduce Tom, Tom introduced the book, and then I have a bunch of my questions, not the unassigned questions, <laughs> questions of my own that I would like to ask, if with your permission. That would be great. Okay. Our guest, Tom Schaller, is a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, he is the author of a number of previous books, including Whistling Past Dixie and The Stronghold, which was a book about Congress, and a few others. Uh, he and I have been friends for a couple of decades and collaborators, and uh, I can tell one little story about this. This is the first book we wrote together. Back in 2016, I don't know if it was like February or March, when Donald Trump was beginning to seize control of the primary campaign, we put together a proposal for a book about Donald Trump, about kind of why Donald Trump happened, and sent it around to a bunch of publishers. And the response they all got, what we got back from all of them was, eh, nobody wants to read a book about Donald Trump. So <laughs> that happened. It's not like he's going to win the election. <laughs> Uh, with that, Tom, welcome to Boundary Issues, and why don't you tell us about white rural rage? 
Well, first of all, thanks to you both for inviting me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Paul and I have the same literary agent, Will Lippincott, out in L.A., and we had been banding about ideas, Paul and I, about uh, book ideas. Uh, we wanted to write something that was timely, and we wanted to write something that maybe brushed up against the Trump phenomenon MAGA, but wasn't just another Trump book. And I think as we started to notice polling data and other big data studies from Pew and other places, there was a pattern that was hard to ignore, and yet nobody had seemed to notice, which is that at a moment when people are talking about the state and fate of democracy, about the existential threat to this world's longest continuous constitutional democracy, nobody was really, I hate to use a McCarthy sort of era term, but nobody was naming names. Like you could call it, you could say MAGA was a problem or threat was, uh, Trump was a threat or what have you. But like from a geodemographic standpoint, we weren't saying like which exact voters around the country. We had a sense that it was working class voters, white working class voters. And that's certainly part of the story. But as we looked at the polls, it was clear that the, the sort of tip of the spear for a lot of these movements, the racism, xenophobia, anti-LGBTQ, anti-immigrant sentiment, you look at a poll and there's rural whites, they, they have the highest animosity of that group. You looked at conspiracy theories and there they were at the top of the poll. Maybe not by a lot sometimes, other times by quite a bit. You looked at anti-democratic sentiments in terms of unilateral presidential power or you know support for the constitutional sheriffs or the belief that Trump should rule as a dictator or be restored to office by force. And there they were. And, and we thought, how come nobody's noticed this? And, and I think to sort of open the book up and the idea is one of two things is happening. The more charitable view is literally nobody took the time to notice, which I find a little curious because we've spent so much time or the national media has crawling over each other like puppies trying to get out of a cardboard box to interview the next 12 people at an Iowa diner wearing, you know, red hats about why they love Trump. And so how come we're studying this group so closely and yet not noticing some of the basic patterns? The less charitable and more cynical view, which I've eventually come to adopt, is that some people have noticed and they don't want to talk about it. Well, Paul and I are going to talk about it. And in our book, White Rural Rage, The Amer Threat to American Democracy, we provide chapter and verse and receipts uh, to back it up, too. And I think the book will be controversial and inserts itself, hopefully at the right moment, as Trump seeks a second non-consecutive term, buoyed by the base of his base, the capo tutti capo of the MAGA movement, which is not just white voters. And not just white downscale, non-college educated voters, but specifically white conservative rural voters are the backbone of the backbone of the Trump coalition. You know, I actually have a couple of questions that are hopeful that I'm going to save for the end. Everything else I have to talk about is so expresses not just my confusion, but maybe a little bit of my own rage in response to the white rural rage. There are a few things that I want to ask you about. Specifically, the thing that just came up for me yesterday in thinking about what you were talking about, and it, and it kind of was replicated, Paul, in that discussion we had with Monica. I mean, how much of this is about what I think we can sort of call an actual brain drain? Like, who stays in rural towns? Who leaves? If you're, if you're raised in a rural town and you go and get an education, what are the chances of you coming back? And what does that mean for the town that's left behind? One of the problems that rural America has, and I should say we talk a lot in the book, we have a whole chapter that basically gives a tour of the different challenges that rural America faces in healthcare, in infrastructure. And one of those is that brain drain. And it's a constant problem because what happens? Well, if you're an ambitious young person and you finish high school or you finish college 
and you're looking for economic opportunity in a lot of rural places, there just isn't very much. For instance, we went to a Navajo reservation in Arizona. We were talking to this woman who's now an elected official there about this issue. And she said, you know, I have two kids. One of them is in the Air Force, my son, and my daughter lives in Phoenix because she wants to, she's cutting hair. She's learning to be a hairdresser. And she said, you know, we don't have a salon on this reservation. It's a huge reservation by landmass. She said, we don't have a salon here. Where's she going to get a job? So she's in Phoenix. Now she said that she knew that her, her children were going to come back one day, but that's a problem everywhere. That also has a political element too, because if you are one of those liberal people who grew up in rural America, and there are plenty of them, even if they're not the majority, there are lots of them. You can feel kind of oppressed. You can feel like not only that you don't have the economic opportunities that you have, but you don't have enough like-minded people. And I think that any of us who has lived in cities have met people from rural places and small towns who said, I came here to the city so I could be more with my people because I didn't feel comfortable there. And you know, this is one thing going back to that episode we did with Monica Potts that she mentioned, we were talking about how, you know, even if you have a place that's like 70, 30 Trump voters, 30% is still a substantial portion of the community. When we brought that up, Monica said, yes, but if you're in that 30%, it means you always lose. So that's another dimension of it too. If you're if you're one of those kind of the minority of liberal people, you can feel like you just you just can't get anywhere in any number of ways, especially politically. But so you you do have this brain drain. The ambitious young people leaves. That leaves you with a lot of older people who are more conservative and who are more receptive to those kinds of arguments from conservative political leaders who say that the world is against you, everything is going to hell, that our country is being destroyed by the same people who you know lured your children away. And you know when people in rural areas, conservative people worry that their kids are going to go to college and they're going to turn liberal and reject their values, they're right a lot of the time because they go to college, their mind gets expanded, they get exposed to all these new ideas and they come back and they say, you know, mom and dad, I'm not sure I agree with you on this anymore. And that's very painful. And so you start to turn against the very institution of higher learning. And we've seen that a lot too. Tom, do you want to chime in? Yeah, the definitive book on this brain drain is a book by uh, by Patrick Carr and, and Maria Kafalis called uh, Hollowing Out the Middle, the Rural Brain Drain. It came out about a decade ago. And they lived in an Iowa town, which they left unnamed in the book. Some people figured out what it was for a year. And they talked to parents, they talked to school teachers. And what they found was that the best and the brightest students were strongly encouraged to get up and get out and go to a nice state university, either in the state, Iowa, presumably, or Iowa State, or somewhere else, or an Ivy League school, or a nice, you know, private liberal arts school someplace in the Midwest or the Northeast. And some come back, but yeah, if you're going to go out and you're going to invest that money and the whole community gets behind these young people and finds scholarship money for them and supports them, how are they going to pay back that kind of investment? I guess they could come home, but most of them will go on and become doctors and lawyers and accountants and brain surgeons someplace else, right? And not come home. And there's actually a poll that we cite in the book from the University of New Hampshire that showed that even though 40% of people in metro areas say they would tell their kids to move out of the area, 61% of rural parents say they would tell their kids to move out of the area. So it's not like you know, they're not being encouraged that people are very aware of the economic decay that's happening. They're aware of the declining economic opportunities in their communities, and they're telling their best and brightest to move out. Now, Will Wilkinson, who was long time at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank, he wrote this whole piece about what he calls the density divide. And he found what's really amazing is that we can now 
define the urban-rural divide on some of the big five personality traits, including openness to experience. And what they find is that people, regardless of how wealthy or talented or well they did in high school, people who rate more sort of liberal on the open, more open on the openness to experience are most likely to leave rural areas. And that means the residual people, to your question, uh, Ayala, leaves the residual people who stay behind more conservative. And so it's a voting with your feet. Like the, the blue people are self-segregating and leaving rural places and leaving a redder residual community, including in some cases their own family members and loved ones. So this process, this balkanization of red American, blue America is very real on a lot of other factors like abortion positions and what have you. But it's also happening on, on some of the core psychological traits where blue America looks at the world literally differently. From it's America. interesting that you were talking about that. You guys mentioned this in the book about how there's more and more like that immigration is actually the only thing that increases the size of rural American communities, particularly Latino immigration. My initial response to that was, oh, good. Well, more diversity. But then is that what's really happening even when you have more a larger Latino population? Because I think we have a misconception about where the communities of color necessarily fall when it comes to, you know, red, blue, and what happens when people go into a rural community. I mean, I guess what I'm sort of asking is, would you expect that as a lot of these jobs get taken by people from recent immigrants, did they change the community or is the community changed them? Well, you know, it's a complicated story. There are some rural communities that have actively embraced immigration and said, our population is shrinking. We need new people. We need an infusion of just bodies. We need we need to get people here who will have jobs and buy things. And And there are places that have been really successful in kind of revitalizing their community with, with immigrants. And there are also a lot of places where that has generated a real backlash. One of the things you find universally is that the places where there is the the greatest antipathy toward immigrants are often places not where there's no immigrants and not where there are a lot of immigrants, but place where the immigrant population is beginning to increase and the white population as a proportion of the whole is beginning to decrease. I think there was a study that showed that a lot, a very high proportion of the people who came to January 6th and were part of the mob that overran the Capitol came from places like that, where they were traditionally predominantly white, and they had seen an increase in immigration. And that made a lot of people very, very uneasy and feel like, you know, the whole country is changing. So it's a complicated picture. There are certainly places where there's a, a meatpacking plant and the only people they can get to work there because the work is so hard are immigrants. And so you get an infusion of immigrants into a community and they start, you know, opening stores and things too. And then people feel like, oh, now I'm going down to the grocery store and I'm hearing people speaking Spanish and I don't like that. And that too makes them very open to some of those arguments from people like Donald Trump. I think in answer to that question too, you have to remember, I mean, I, I don't know per se whether minorities moving into rural America are different from say minorities who already lived in rural America, like particularly African Americans, who there are, you know, more than 100 rural counties in the country that are majority black, and almost 40% of them are clustered on the lower Mississippi Valley and the east and west banks of the Mississippi River and places like northern Louisiana and, and, and Arkansas. I suspect African Americans, uh, they're a little bit more church and as they say, they're a little bit more religiously conservative. They're probably more conservative on average than African Americans who live in Brooklyn, right? Or LA County or someplace. And that may be because they share a rural identity and a rural consciousness because they grew up rural and they live in rural and they're what African Americans call country black. For the new immigrants, I'm not so sure yet. And I don't know that we know that much yet in terms of whether or not 
Latinos who say come across the border, let's just keep it simple, say they're Mexican-Americans are about 65% of the immigrants, and they move to the Phoenix metro area, whether they end up being acculturated and assimilated differently from somebody who moves to work on a farm in central California or central Iowa or someplace. I mean, I assume that there are some socializing effects from their white neighbors, let's say, that makes Latinos who move to a more rural area somewhat more conservative than perhaps uh, their counterparts who have the same country, same age, same number of generations in the state who move to an urban area because city life and country life are, are somewhat different. You know, there's just a piece in the Politico about Latinos in Pennsylvania who are moving a little bit toward Trump. Politico ran a piece four years ago, but talking about the same thing. Latinos live in live outside Philadelphia in Lancaster and the Lehigh Valley in these mid small range cities. And they're definitely more conservative than the Latinos are in the Philadelphia metropolitan area. So where you live, where you sit does affect where you stand, to use an old cliche. And I, I wouldn't be surprised, as we saw along the Texas border, where Trump did pretty well with Latinos in 2020, um, there's a sensitivity to there and there's an appeal to sort of the anti-immigrant uh, positions, even among recent legal uh, citizens who immigrated a generation or two ago. So place does matter and it can have a mediating effect on how much race determines your ideology and partisanship, I think. You know, okay, I want to roll back and ask you guys a question. And I'm, I'm asking because I was listening to you, Tom, and at the same time, I'm like checking out your ball cap and your whole like look. So here you two big city slickas and you head out to do the research on this book. Tom, you can like you can totally pass. Like put you in a pickup and you guys should talk about the pickup stuff. I love the whole the, the stuff you write about the pickup, which it's very much a thing. You know, I, I, I spend my summers in Maine and it's like a whole pickup culture, obviously. But so Tom, you can fade in, but you're dragging this like big old Jew behind you, this nearsighted yeah. Jew. What, what is that like for you? What was that experience? I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that my experience in the South has always been, and obviously rural America is everywhere, not just the South, but specific, but you guys did spend a fair amount of time in the South. My experience has always been there's this actual warmth and pleasantness in person-to-person -person interaction that Northern uh, Metro snobs like me find unexpected and then very charming. But what was it like for you? How did you... Did you, how did you avoid the walk into the diner and find the Trump guy in the MAGA hat and interview him situation? Well, first of all, let me say about Paul, like Paul is a little more introverted than I am. And my, I'm not Jewish. I was raised Catholic, but my name starts SCH. So we probably look like a couple of white Jew guys from <laughs> Jewish guys from, from the Northeast somewhere. I, I went to school in Tallahassee and I also lived in the rural Chatham County, next county over from Chapel Hill. I didn't live in the more urbane Chapel Hill when I got my PhD at Carolina. So I've lived a little bit in rural America. Both of my grandparents lived their late stages in their life in rural areas in upstate New York, near Cooperstown and out in the rural parts of uh, Albany County near Altamont. But kind of like you guys a little bit, like we sort of played off each other because I'm sort of like bad cop, Paul's sort of like good cop. Uh, that's our attitude toward promoting the book and, and all that other stuff. So there's like a there's there's a bit of an interplay there where we're uh, you know there's there's sort of this this weird good cop bad cop where we we play off each other a little bit. And you're right. I mean, people are people everywhere, and um, you know they're they're products of their environment. Obviously, there are some people who have very close minded views and even you know borderline hateful, racist, and even violent views. So the vast majority of Americans aren't like that. This book isn't 
describing every single rural white person. Of course, there are plenty of rural white people who are patriots, who believe in our constitutional system and are devoted to our traditional norms and values and love their country. Uh, But there are many who are not. You know, a big part of this was getting out there and seeing what the quote unquote real America really looks like up close. And uh, some of the things we learned confirm, you know, those things. And some of those things were a bit more eye opening. I mean, Paul can give you a sense of what he thinks getting out in the field was like. I I I thought it was eye opening. Tell me more about that, Paul. What what opened your eyes and what did you see that surprised you? Well, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of reporting one can do. And we also did, as part of this book, some of the reporting that I usually do in my job, which is calling up experts. I mean, that's, you know, for many years when I needed to know, get some kind of perspective, I would, you know, if there's a legal issue going on with one of Trump's law cases, I call up a law professor and interview them and then I get some quotes, et cetera. And we did some of that for this book. But we also did reporting in the field, just going and talking to people. And as Tom says, I'm a little more introverted. Uh, it's It takes a little more for me to just walk up to strangers and start asking them questions. But as you said, I yell at, you know, people tend to be nice. And that goes for people who maybe whose ideas you believe in and people whose ideas you do not believe in. For instance, we stopped at this little roadside store in Llano, Texas, where they seem to sell only two things, Trump memorabilia and ammunition. And- <laughs> We just, you know, we just walked in and Tom goes right up to the clerk and says, hey, we're from Washington, D.C. We're writing a book about rural America and starts asking the questions. And they were really friendly. And we chatted and we had that experience again and again where, you know, people who uh, were very open and in a lot of cases really wanted to tell us what their political views were. And we would have some conversations that started off just friendly talking about whatever. And then we get into politics and people tell you things that make your hair stand on end, but the whole interaction can be very friendly. You know, I think that that probably lots of reporters will tell you that. I mean, there are certainly reporters who go into very dangerous situations and and are concerned about whether they're going to escape with their lives. We're not doing anything that courageous. And, you know, we we also talked to a lot of different kind of, kinds of people. There were situations where we just walk up somewhere and like start chatting up who's ever there. And there were a lot of things we arranged with local public officials and local journalists, things like that, people who knew a lot about an area and whose perspective we wanted. But uh, I think that that's one of the things that uh, hopefully will make this book valuable. You know, there's a lot of different approaches you can take to writing a book like this. There are terrific books that have been written where somebody just went to one place for, you know, five years and did kind of a deep ethnography of everything they saw there. And then there are books uh, written by academics often that don't actually talk to any people at all, or maybe do some surveys, but don't do any kind of in-person interviews. And that can have a lot of value too. We decided when we were setting out on this that we wanted to kind of do it from all levels. We wanted to look at the 30,000 foot level at public opinion, at uh, voting patterns and things like that, and also get expert opinions and also just get out and talk to some people. One of the things you realize is that America is a very large country. And if we had five more years, we could have gone to a lot more places. But uh, we got some valuable insights from the places that we did go and the people we spoke to. Tell me on both sides. I want to hear like one experience that was you're having a conversation and someone says something and you're just like, oh my God, that freaks me out. That's terrible. That's scary, whatever that is. And then I want to hear one that surprised you in the other way. And I'm going to I'm gonna tell you something that happened to my husband, Michael, as a kind of entree to that. So Michael's writing a book that's set in Texas in the 1930s. And he's been driving from Maine to California at the end of every summer to do research trips, stopping at the various places that, uh, that where his book is featured. 
And um, so one time, before it became absolutely obvious what a piece of shit he was, Elon Musk was, we had a Tesla. So Michael was driving the Tesla cross country through Texas, through the South, through Texas. And he had our Labradoodle designer dog with him. Okay. So he's a guy, he's got a, you know, like a hipster beard and his hipster hair and his hipster dog and his hipster car. And he's driving through Texas. And he said he had this feeling like, oh my God, oh my God, what's going to happen? So he's walking down the street. And he sees these two guys coming up to him, like cowboy boots, big belt buckles. This was somewhere, I can't remember what town it was in. And he thought, all right, here we go. And he's walking, he's getting out of his Tesla, walking Agnes. And he was just like, okay, I'm waiting for it. And these two guys came up to him and they're like, oh my God, that is the cutest dog I've ever seen. What's his name? Oh, it's a girl sheep. And they're like basically on their knees, petting Agnes, cuddling Agnes, telling Agnes how much they love her, talking to Michael about Agnes. He said, I, I think it's, I, I feel like it might be Agnes. That's the ticket to, you know, being accepted in this is have a really cute dog and just don't tell anybody how much it costs. But like that really surprised him. So tell me the the interaction that surprised you both positively and negatively. Well, I can tell one story and this didn't end up making it into the book, but there was another guy we met in Lanham, Texas, a guy in his 30s. We started chatting about hiking and Tom and I both like to hike and this guy did too. And we were talking about that and having a good time. And then the, uh, he was seemed very nice and personable. And then the conversation sort of turned to politics. And as he talked more and more, he was bringing up... George Soros and Ivermectin and eventually the the great replacement theory. And he was deep into like all the, maybe not quite QAnon, but but QAnon adjacent stuff. Uh, but yet he was very nice and we, we had a really pleasant time talking to him. And afterward, we were talking about it and we couldn't quite figure out like, what is the story there? Is is this just like an ordinary guy who fell down some YouTube rabbit holes and you could potentially kind of pull him back to reality? Or is he just kind of irredeemably that way? It's really hard to tell. You know, there were conversations like that we had with people who were expressing views that were deeply troubling, but were very nice and pleasant. I don't know. Do you, Tom, do you have any uh, anything that really surprised you as we were talking to people? I'll, I'll take the other side. So like, you know, we went up into the Adirondacks and we interviewed some town supervisors there in Essex County, which is home to Lake Placid and Whiteface Mountain and also in neighboring Franklin County. And we interviewed town supervisors in the town of Malone and Wilmington and Willsboro. And they're Republicans, all of them, but they're pretty like moderate Republicans and they're running local governments, which aren't really I mean, increasingly national politics is filtering to the states and state politics is filtering to the local level, unfortunately. But managing a town is really a non-part, you know, it's about making sure there's garbage and recycling collection and making sure areas for Airbnbs are zoned a certain way and solving problems when the power goes out and things like that and trying to coax and wheedle as much money out of Albany or Washington you can for things like your local ambulance service and so forth. And, you know, after talking to some of these people, my takeaway was like, you know, these are just, they're Republicans, right? And they have to run for office. They endorse, and there's pictures of them on their walls with Lee Stefanik, and they're Trump supporters and so forth. But in the end, they're really just managers, right? They're just like people that make the trains run on time, to use a bad metaphor. And um, that's their job. And most of them literally know almost every constituent who's of a voting age and their kids and grandkids and go back. I mean, one of the town managers we met, who's the, man, uh, the town supervisor of... Um, of Wilmington, which is his office is literally in the shadow of, of Whiteface Mountain. Like, 
you know, he can trace back government officials in his family for like four generations. And then the mayor or the town supervisor of Willsboro, which is on Lake Champlain, uh, Sean Gilliland, like the town Willsboro is named for William Gilliland, like his great, great, great grandfather from the revolutionary period. And when you go to the Willsboro town hall, there's a painting of his sixth generation forefather right above where the city, the town council meets every day. And so, yeah, I'm sure those people, some of them believe, you know, in QAnon conspiracies, and I'm sure some of them believe the election was stolen and some probably believe both. But on a day-to-day basis, how does that really affect like fishing permits and boating licenses on Lake Champlain? It doesn't affect it at all, right? I mean, they're just local community managers who have their own perhaps ideological orientations, but mostly they're just trying to figure out a way to help their town survive by getting what they need out of Albany, in this case in New York, and getting what they need out of Washington or stemming the tide of regulations and things that you know create problems for them on a local level. And it's a relatively thankless job. It's not high, you know, it's not like, a, 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 you know, sort of like a high attention job, like being the congresswoman, Elise Stefanik, who's a national official, right, who's on the short list informally for Trump's vice president. There's no glamour in being a town supervisor. And for a lot of these people managing a town of 1,500 or 2,000 or 2,500 people, it's really like being a middle manager at some company, you know, and uh, it's uh, mostly listening to people's complaints, getting calls at three o'clock in the morning because there's a power outage or there's an ambulatory problem and fighting with the governor about not closing down the the 24 hour um, emergency room in Lake Placid because some of your people are going to die if they have to go all the way to to Plattsburgh instead of, you know, the much shorter drive to Lake Placid in an ambulance. And so that there's really no ideological politics. There's no Yahooism. There's no like you know, stop the steal kind of stuff, even if you ask them on some of those nationalists what they think, they probably do think the election was stolen from Trump. Is the, is this rage that you talk about that is really real? And, you know, for as a Jew, right, the great replacement theory freaks me out, obviously, because Jews will not replace us. But I'm trying to understand, is it social issues that are that some of them are particularly offensive to them? You know, there's this thing we say that Jews always say, which is, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's bad for the Jews, right? Bernie Madoff is bad for the Jews. I feel that way anytime there's like lately the the liberal elite media seems obsessed with polyamory and I'm just like oh my god that's just so bad for democrats could we have to stop talk about this, this is literally what they said was going to happen when we you know when the supreme court legalized gay marriage or like furries or whatever it is. I'm just like, shh, 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 really bad for us. So like, are there specific issues? Are there social issues that sustain that are like kindling to this rage? This has has been an ongoing debate about Trump in particular. What was it that attracted rural voters to Donald Trump? And the sort of two competing stories are, oh, it was economic anxiety or it was these social issues, gay rights, abortion, et cetera. And It's actually a story that combines both, I think, because there was a great hollowing out of the economy of rural America over the last few decades, an enormous decline in manufacturing as blue-collar factory jobs moved overseas. Nobody is making tube socks in America anymore when you can pay somebody in Vietnam 12 cents an hour to do it. So that is part of the story. And a lot of people in small towns and rural areas and in the Rust Belt feel with justification that neither party arrested that. And both parties were complicit in creating that decades-long diminution of economic prospects in small towns and rural areas. 
And they're correct about that. Both parties were complicit. So then you take that, a situation where Democrats can no longer plausibly say to a lot of people, or at least in a way that's going to be believed by them, uh, hey, you know, we actually have an economic agenda that's going to be better for you. And they do. Democrats do have an economic agenda that will be much better for people in rural areas and people who are suffering economically generally. But the trouble is people don't believe it. And so where do you then go if those economic issues and the differences between the parties have been kind of taken off the table? Well, then you have a Republican Party that says one thing for a long time, and then Donald Trump, Trump comes and says a second thing. The party has been saying, those people are alien from you, those Democrats. They don't believe in what you believe. They don't have the same values as you. They don't believe in your God. They want to take us into this new Sodom and Gomorrah of uh, you know moral vacuousness where anything goes. Uh, and so they're not you. You're alien from them. And therefore, you should just vote for us because we believe the same things you you do. And then Donald Trump comes along and he adds to that this kind of very angry economic populism that in truth doesn't offer people any kind of a new economic future. It just says, be pissed off about that economy too, because Republicans weren't telling that story to rural Americans, really. They weren't coming before Trump and saying, you know, you should be angry about NAFTA because look what it did to your communities. They weren't saying that, but Trump said that. He said, you know, the whole thing was rigged and the elites from both parties came here and they took away all your jobs and sent them overseas and I will be your champion. Now, the trouble with that from planet Earth where things are actually happening is that he's not their champion. What, what's the one major piece of legislation that Donald Trump signed while he was in office? A tax cut for corporations and rich people. He didn't help these people, but it was a story that he told them that really resonated, say, yes, we were getting screwed. It is those elites. So that was a very compelling story that he was able to tell them. And that's part of why they are were so attracted to him. And it's a very complicated. There are a lot of other, other reasons too. One of the things that you hear so often, we heard this from people, uh, I've seen lots of people quoted, one of, one of the sort of the puzzlements of Donald Trump in rural areas is that what we were told for so long is that if you want to attract rural world, you have to really speak their language. You have to understand their struggles. You have to know what their lives are like. You have to put on a Carhartt jacket and go down to somebody's farm and talk about commodity prices. And only then, when they know you really understand them, will they consider voting for you. Well, Donald Trump didn't do any of that. It turned out that they weren't actually looking for that. They were looking for somebody who would channel their anger. And people said to us over, over and over again, like, oh, you know, he, he speaks our language. And the first reaction you have to that is, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Donald Trump doesn't speak your language. Well, it turns out that what they mean is that he's an asshole. And when he, you know, says, grab him by the pussy and beat the shit out of him and that kind of stuff, that's what they mean when, when they say he speaks our language, that he has that same kind of unadorned anger and often bigotry, which is the racial element is a whole other complicated question. When they see him doing that, that helped to forge that connection because they thought, well, maybe in some way, even though this is a guy who grew up in Queens and never wanted anything more than to be accepted by the Manhattan Brahmins, that he is actually in some kind of deep spiritual way one of us because he has that same kind of viciousness and anger that we're looking for that no other Republican is going to channel. Marco Rubio isn't going to go up and say, beat the shit out of those guys. That's not 
what your ordinary politician does. That's the thing that people connected with and kind of thrilled to, that he gave them permission to give voice to in their own lives and that he was showing them up on a stage. So that's just so profoundly depressing. So basically the idea is this man who is going to be president again is going to be president because he gives voice to this rage, to the worst parts of who we are, to the most foul, base hatred that all of us feel. I mean, we all feel that. That isn't unique to Republicans. It's just the object of our hatred. is It's directed in other places. So that's it. I mean, are we doomed to that forever? My theory of the case on this, and having watched focus groups of undecided voters, which is a frightening experience. I've done some of that lately. It's forget that they're low information in terms of like what policies this party or this candidate supported and who voted what rates for it on the floor of the House or the Senate. I think most people don't have a fundamental understanding of how government works. And that's particularly true, especially true on the economy. People think, okay, I rise or fall by pluck or luck, or maybe a hookup or a connection or working at the mill where my dad worked, or because I was able to squeeze into college because I was smart. And I most of what I've achieved, maybe two or 3% is accountable by some social force. Most of what I've achieved or failed is because of myself. And so political economy doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the government raises the minimum wage. It doesn't matter if the government loosens the laws attacking unions. It doesn't matter if the government signs NAFTA. I mean, they, they hear that, but to take Paul's point on NAFTA, and I'm not a policy expert on trade and tariffs, but I've read some people who said, if you look at the USMCA, the, the US-Mexico-Canada agreement, the Trump's replacement of the worst trade deal, as he said, right? of USMCA. It's at least 90% identical. And some people say 92, 93%. Essentially, he didn't change NAFTA hardly at all. He changed it at the margins, put a new label on it and claimed it's a huge victory. Now, I don't know about you guys, but 93% of a shit sandwich is still a shit sandwich, right? And maybe those marginal things did affect a few industries and stuff, although we know it made it worse for dairy farmers who have record suicide rates now, because uh, some of the changes that Trump made with the tariffs just meant that foreign buyers would stop buying our own products. And, and there's widespread bankruptcies in Wisconsin and the other upper Midwest states that caused family farms that had been in business for generations to collapse. So, some of the 7% didn't even make things better. It actually could arguably be made worse. But the point is, if you understood how the economy worked, you would A, notice that the USMCA really isn't much different from NAFTA, and you'd call Trump out on it. On social issues, on the other hand, and, and with, with cause, you can look and say, well, if they take away this gun, if they take away an AR-15, the government can do that. And that's very clear. They can prohibit, prohibit this thing, or they can make this kind of ammunition legal, or they can make bump stocks legal or not, or they can make abortion legal or illegal. And I think social issues, everybody has a point of entry, right? Everybody has a family. Everybody has understands their biological ability to reproduce, and, and everybody has a, an opinion on abortion. Everybody has an opinion on race. You don't have to be thoroughly read about, you know, policy or, or be a economist to understand how trade agreements work. People have, especially on body issues, marriage, divorce, births, pregnancies, child rearing, people have an automatic point of entry into those issues. And the parties are very different there. Let's talk about that for a second, because abortion seems to defy what you guys are talking about when it's actually on the ballot. We win on abortion. I really heartily believe this. We've seen it in Kansas. We've seen it in all these places. I mean, women want to be able to get abortions. I had a late stage, later stage abortion because of a genetic abnormality. 
and I was in a support group. It was a really traumatic experience. And there was a woman who was religious Catholic. She had a baby with Down syndrome who was very affected. Not It's not just a developmental delay. She had profound physical deformities and difficulties. And her priest told her it was okay for her to get an abortion. She was completely pro-life and then had this personal experience. And then, like I say, we see this again and again. When when we get abortion on the ballot, we win. It doesn't matter where it is. So talk to me a little bit about abortion and talk to me also about why the Democratic Party seems so squeamish about the one issue we can win on. Democratic squeamishness is a, an old and complicated story, but I think that if, there are a lot of ways in which Democrats don't have the courage of their own convictions and they can't kind of take yes for an answer when it comes to the voters. I think also abortion may be unique in that so many people do actually have intimate personal experience with it, and it's not abstract. And some of the other social issues are kind of abstract. And I would say one thing too, that part of the whole rural ethos is that this lifestyle and our way of living is kind of nostalgic. It's rooted in the past. It's static and unchanging. And that's sort of part of the ideology is that you can go into this small town and it's just the same as it was decades ago. And that's what makes it so valuable is that we hold on to, to these things that are good about our lifestyle. And Democrats are the party of diversity and the party of change. So right there, that kind of lays a foundation to be able to say, well, there's change coming and it's scary. And for a lot of people, you know, we are in a, a period of rapid social change, especially around gender and sexuality. And a lot of people in all kinds of places find that very disorienting, even though for most people it's abstract. You know, there was this thing that happened in Utah where they had a bill in the legislature that passed, it's overwhelmingly Republican there, to ban uh, trans kids from playing uh, high school sports. And the governor, who is a conservative Republican, vetoed it because after talking to people and considering it, he said that, you know, there are something like four kids in the entire state of Utah, trans kids who want to play on their high school teams. And he said, like, it's just not worth harming these kids because of this kind of fear that that so many people have that is totally distant from any kind of reality that people are living. There are some of those kinds of issues that really are sort of abstract, but they just don't like what it represents. It represents a kind of change that they're very, that they find very uneasy. And that is about social issues, but it's about the world in general. You know, we all, I think all of us feel sometimes at least like things are happening that you don't really understand and it can be a little unsettling. One of the interesting things that's happened today is that I feel like, I'm sure there are linguists who have studied this, slang is produced and disseminated at a much faster rate than it was when we were kids. Because how would you have heard about when you were in high school, a new slang term that somebody in Minnesota was using? You would never know. It would it might spread, but it would spread very, very slowly. And now because of social media and the internet, the language can change really fast. And so you can listen to, if you're a person in your 50s, two 14-year-olds talk and feel like, I don't have any idea what the hell they're talking about. And it's disorienting. And you're like, damn kids. And so it makes you feel like the world is just leaving you behind. And so for a lot of real people whose whole kind of idea about what makes a good community is that it doesn't change and that it holds on to the things that are valuable, that feeling that the world is out of control is something that's very powerful. And then you have a party that's really good at exploiting that feeling and coming along and saying all these social changes. And that has to do with it has to do with race. It has to do with gender. It has to do with sexuality. It has to do with the workplace. All of that can be blamed on people you don't like 
And those people you don't like are represented by Democrats. Okay, two things. One, I would say that the same experience you have of it's true in rural America. It's also true. Let's say pick a New York neighborhood. Nobody likes when their neighborhood changes, right? Like, oh my God, there's a big box store came in and now there's a middle of mini Target and there used to be a shoemaker. And so that experience of feeling like your tiny little community, whether that's a bounded area of six blocks in the West Village or whether it's, you know, somewhere in Arkansas is the same, I think. I really you have some experience with nimbyism there in Berkeley. Oh yeah, you think, um, but but then but I want you were to, I wanted to ask you, but specifically about abortion because I do feel like this is the one issue that we pretend is everybody in the it trumps America is voting against abortion and hates abortion, but then when we actually put it on the ballot, people and I think it's primarily women will vote with the, they will put them their vote on the line to support abortion rights. So why is the Democratic Party about anything other than abortion right now? I mean, the Democrats are running pretty hard on choice. And I think they know that it's a winner because, as you said, every statewide referenda or ballot measure has gone in the pro-choice direction, including not just in blue states, but red states like Kansas. But you mentioned Kansas. And so while I was sitting here, I wanted to double check my memory on this. In 2022, Kansas sent this big surprise to the nation and the abortion uh, provision was upheld by the pro-choice side, like 59 to 41, let's just call it 60 to 40. And on the exact same day, the exact same election by a 60 to 40 margin, Republican Senator Jerry Moran won. So he won by 20 points and choice won by 20 points, which means if you assume that all the hardcore anti-choice people certainly voted for Moran, and if you assume all this died in the wool pro-choice people voted for Moran's opponent, I can't even remember who it was. That means there's 20%, one out of five Kansans voted for him, who provides votes for the confirmation of the very Supreme Court justices who voted on that case, right? And supported Donald Trump. And to my knowledge, he's pro-life too, or anti-choice, depending on what language you want to use. They're voting for an anti-choice senator who votes to confirm Donald Trump's anti-choice appointees, including Amy Coney Barrett, to the bench. At the same time, they're voting against that state referendum. That's one out of five Kansans essentially sending a mixed message. Now, you might say, well, that's the only thing they disagree with him on, and they like his Republican conservatism views on the budget and taxes and regulation and who, you know, whatever else, farm issues in Kansas. I don't know what, what explains that disconnect. And maybe every single one of those one-fifth of Kansans who voted for Moran and voted for choice are female Kansans. You, may, maybe that's true. I don't know if, if, if anybody's done a study to figure that out. But the fact of the matter is, that issue is carrying one way, but it's not taking down the Republican right. Party. Oh, so I, I didn't ever think of it that way. Like, if you run on abortion, abortion wins. The people who support abortion don't win. It's support abortion rights don't win. It's just abortion itself. Yeah, because it's a standalone vote. You can can't, you can basically say, I want to vote for this one little piece with which I disagree with Senator Moran, but I still want to reelect him because I agree with him on most of it. All right, I have to ask a hopeful question. I swore to myself that the last question I asked you would like evince some kind of modicum of hope. So Paul knows that country music is one of my favorite topics. So we have, obviously, you begin the book with that Jason Aldean song where this urban country singer because let's be clear he's not a rural guy from no small town he is not from a small town at all where's he from is it macon macon georgia, georgia which is macon, a small georgia. city oh that tiny little macon georgia <laughs> that you know rural village macon, one of the allman brothers right so we have this guy in this song that obviously like causes this whole social stir shooting up the billboard charts 
but somehow canceled, as you guys point out. But then we just had at the Grammys this moment where Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman sang a duet of Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. The entire internet started to cry. Now, was it just my internet that started to cry? Was it just my internet that saw this gay black woman and this white dude country singer um, having this moment of real like musical intimacy, I think is the best way that you can describe it, and felt like a flash of hope? And is that just more of the same circle jerk of people on my side of the divide? Or is that any translation about of that? Like, does anybody in this group of people that you spent all this time interviewing and thinking about and talking to, did they want any kind of cross divide? I won't even say unity, but I just compassion and understanding. Or is that just a naive hope of mine? Here's what I think about that. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about that. So this was Luke Holmes's biggest crossover hit. He, for people who don't know, is probably maybe the second most popular country star of the last five years or so after Morgan Wallen. Luke Holmes is huge. And uh, one of the attractions that he brings is a kind of authenticity. Country music is consumed with authenticity, as are a number of other genres like hip hop. Luke Holmes, unlike all those handsome bro country dudes in tight jeans and those thick leather bracelets, Luke Holmes is, you know, kind of a big scruffy guy. And he looks like your cousin. He doesn't look like somebody who was, you know, pumped out of the Nashville image machine. And that's part of his attraction is that he is authentic. And he has said that Fast Car was, was his favorite song from when he was a kid listening to it in his dad's F-150. He is treated Tracy Chapman with a real kind of reverence, not only in that performance at the Grammys, but in the way that he recorded his cover of that song. He didn't change a thing about it. He didn't even change. There's a line in there where she says, I worked in the market as a checkout girl. He didn't change that to man or boy or anything. He just did the, the arrangement. Everything is exactly as she did it. He did not really try to make it his own. And one interpretation of that is that it's respectful. And you saw the kind of, saw clearly in that performance, the kind of reverence he has from her. He kind of put himself in the background a little bit. He bowed down to her at the end. And yeah, it gave a lot of people the feels. The, another way to look at that, however, is that he took this song that she wrote that coming from her and her own experiences and her perspective as a black woman is filled with pain and bleakness. And, you know, I, there, there are people who have a different interpretation of that song than I do. I know there are people who find, do find it hopeful. I think it is just, it's saturated in misery and there doesn't seem to be any hope in it. And it's all about a moment in the narrator's past when she felt like she could be someone, but it turned out that that was wrong. And she has just gone from one horrible situation to another. It's very, it's a song that is just filled with pain. And one interpretation of Luke Holmes's version is that because of who he is, it's really not so painful when you hear it from a white man. All of its notions of kind of trying to escape from where you are and finding that the place that you get to isn't really much better. 
country is a huge genre and contains a lot of things, but there's also, there, there's a, a storyline that's really common in country about poverty. That's all about how poverty is terrible, but it can be redeemed by love. And so you see that in songs like Coal Miner's Daughter from Loretta Lynn, Code of Many Colors, Dolly Parton. They're all about how we were poor, but we had love and that made it okay. And home is this place, even when you don't have two nickels to rub together, home is a place that can still be a place of safety and nurturing and everything. And Fast Car is a song about how there is no home. What you have to do is escape. And even when you escape, it still doesn't solve the problem. And so on a very superficial level, you can look at this and look at this, as you say, this queer black woman and this country white man singing together the same song and say, isn't that great? We can come together. But one question is, are they singing the same song or are they kind of singing two different songs? Okay, then you dig into the meaning of the song. But I guess what I'm thinking is like, I think it gave everybody the feels because it allowed for a moment where he like you said, profoundly respected, adored, revered her music. And that it gave us the idea that, oh, someone can feel that way about someone so different from them. And someone can feel that way about the work of someone so different from them. But like what I'm asking is what happened in West Virginia when, if someone saw the Grammys, like, do you think there's the same feeling like, oh, we can shake hands across the divide. I mean, Obama did, you know, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is right. And because Obama was president, America decided that not just they had to have a white man as president next, they had to have the worst white man who ever lived as president. But like, is there any craving? Did you find any craving the way that, I mean, there's plenty of snobbery and you guys know I'm a horrible snob. And, you know, my daughter is obsessed with country music and wants to live in rural North Carolina or rural Tennessee. And that's her plan. I once asked her what her ambition was. And before she started talking about like the job she wants to have, and as an art historian, she was like, I want to live on a gulch and raise goats. And I'm like, well, that's not quite what I was talking about, your gulch. But like, so you know, you know where I come from that, but like, I still feel a sense of despair at the divide. And I find my heart warmed, even if it's fake at images of crossing the divide. And does that exist in the communities that you were talking to? That's one way to look at it is that even that is something, right? That we've made progress if people have a desire to feel like we can all be unified. The other way to look at it is that, okay, well, that's just superficial. And you can say, it's great that a black man was elected president. And that shows that we've, we, we're a country that can do anything and where we all belong. And now I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. And so, you know, you got a little bit of the way there. Um, so maybe that's, that's the best you could say about that, Tom. We have a line in the book where we talk about how not all rural white Americans, but a significant portion of them, we say, sort of hold fast to this view that I love my country, but not our country. And I'm going to draw an analogy between your country music question and my aspirations for the nation. We know that the rapid demographic changes are really what's unsettling our democratic foundations. Ezra Klein argues that certainly and why we're polarized, that demographic change is the single biggest driver of all these tensions. Because if you dig deep down enough, it's really us versus them kind of politics. And the country's changing rapidly and the white ethnic majority is not digesting it too well, whether you read Coates or anybody else. And I think that's very real. But my hope is that 
to analogize country music, right? You've got Little Nas X, a gay black man from a town of seven thousand. He's really from a rural town, unlike a Jason Altine or unlike a country rocker like Kid Rock, who grew up in the wealthy suburbs, but pretends like he's kind of a countryfied guy. And then on the other hand, you have guys like Gary Clark Jr., one of my favorite guitarists, who's like a, out of the tradition of the Allman Brothers, like a country rock lead guitarist who does a solo riff in every bridge of every song i saw him once i just blown away by him a black musician fronting an otherwise all-white rock band right and so we have these crossover people and in music i like to think and entertainment more broadly and maybe you could speak to this artists see other artists and they don't give a shit about the other stuff right they care about the idea or the notion of music or the beauty of music, not who the adherent is, not who the practitioner is, not who the artist is, because the art trumps that. And so they don't care if they're in a mixed race band or whatever, right? The Allman Brothers had a black drummer, for example, right? And they're from Little Macon, Georgia, right? So in the same vein, the people who really love our country, the people who really believe in our constitution, the people who really believe in maintaining and protecting the world's oldest constitutional democracy, they shouldn't care. They shouldn't care the face or the race or who you look, think, act, or pray to as long as you raise your right hand in a ceremony where you're speaking in your second language, English, and saying, I commit myself to this democracy. And the problem is that some people do care about that. We know that white nationalists and Christian nationalists think you need to be white and or Christian to be a true American. That's wrong. You should be happy that people who have come to this country from the far corners, whether it's South Asia or South America or uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, or just Mexico across the southern border, believe in American principles regardless of what they think, regardless of whom they pray to, because they share that music, if you will. And I think that's the problem. When you look at America and you think, this is my country, and all of these new people here, these new claimants to our democracy, I don't even care if they had to learn and pass a test that Donald Trump couldn't pass himself a citizenship in a second language. That's how badly they want to be here. They're still not one of us because they look different or they pray to a different God or they're an atheist or they're Mexican. That's the problem with American democracy is whether or not the people who believe we can digest with open arms, we can accept the people who want to play in our little band here, regardless of what they look like, then we can make it and we can become the first democracy that transitions from a majority ethnic, an ethnic majority, whites becoming the ethnic minority. But other people are holding a firm line because they're frankly white nationalists and, and white Christian nationalists, and they want their country to themselves. And they don't want other people other than to pick their fruits and vegetables and clean their baskets or hotels to come here. And that's really the problem. Now, is that sentiment? Is that revanchist, frankly, racist and xenophobic sentiment? Is it limited to rural America or white rural America? No, it's not. There's plenty of wealthy, upscale white people and some non-white people in the suburbs and cities who subscribe to that. I love my country, but not our country for everybody else. But if we can if we can bridge divides and little Nas X, a gay black man from a Georgia town of 7000 people can go to the Billboard 100 for 19 consecutive weeks with Old Town Road then maybe we can build a country where a Barack Obama can be president and we don't have to destroy the country thereafter by electing, as you said, the worst possible white man we can find to replace him. Okay, the book, as you know by now, but I'm going to say it one more time, is White Rural Rage, The Threat to American Democracy, written by Tom Schaller, our fantastic guest, and myself. Get it wherever you get your books. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here with you guys. Boundary Issues is produced and edited by Paul Waldman. Our music is by Zeke Shabon. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at waldmanpodcast at gmail.com. And this is a listener-supported podcast. So if you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash boundaryissues. 
See you next time.